But that night, I felt different. I prayed different. It was like I was just tired, and I just surrendered. I gave up to God, and I said, God, she's yours. She's not mine. She never was. And if your will is to take her home, then I accept your will. And I know that you are good no matter what. Welcome to the Storytellers Live podcast, where everyday women share stories of hope found in Jesus. I'm Robin, and I'm here with Lindy and Katie, and we are your podcast hosts. And last week, we talked a little bit about Storytellers Live and who we are as a ministry. And as we kick off the new year, we just want to tell you a little bit each week about the different facets of Storytellers Live. So last week, we told you who we were, and we told you a lot about the podcast. And this week, Katie and Lindy are going to tell you more about our Bible studies. Yeah, it's funny. You know, a lot of people are interested in the Bible study, and one of the first things they ask is, well, what does it actually entail? And so I'm just (laughs) going to give you a quick overview of that. Both of our Bible studies, Stories of Hope and Stories of Freedom, focus in on eight different women sharing their stories. And what you do is you listen to a story, and then you have time to really delve into God's Word and go into the theme of the story with God, kind of listening to Him and what He's teaching you through what the storyteller told in addition to what God's Word says. And then you have small group discussion questions that you can either meet with a small group Or, you know, a lot of people say, do I have to have a small group to go through this Bible study? You really don't. You can go into these these stories and into God's Word and even go through those small group discussion questions with God Himself or get one friend. Go through it with one friend. Or if you want a group, like we mentioned last week, there are two options. Lindy, tell them about that. Yes, you actually still have time to join our Zoom Bible study that's going to be led by Courtney Dole, who was featured on episode 71. She shared her story about removing the masks that we all have as women and as mothers in particularly. She will be leading a Zoom Bible study of When God Shows Up, Stories of Freedom. So go to our website on the homepage, just click to register. We'll send you the Zoom link. You can order the Bible study off of our website and that will begin Tuesday, January 24th. Courtney is going to be leading that at 10 a.m. Central every Tuesday. And actually tomorrow here in Birmingham, we are beginning a small group of When God Shows Up, Stories of Freedom. And if you are interested in that, you can also find that under the live events on our website at storytellerslive.org. So tell us about our story today. This week's storyteller is Nicole Baker from Tupelo, Mississippi. And something that's so neat is that Nicole's story was actually featured back in episode 192 with Mary Pat Hancock. And so if that's a story you have not listened to, After listening to Nicole, you may want to go back and listen because there is a really cool connection between the two of them. I tell you, Nicole's story is just so very powerful. We titled it Miracle Upon Miracle because one of the things that I loved, sometimes, you know, when we put the podcast on air, we take out just some of the discussion that happens in the live gathering. But I loved it because Tina Rose, the community leader in Tupelo, said as she introduced Nicole's story, she said, you know, there is a lot of sadness in this story, but I don't want you to think about the suffering and the sadness. I want you to count the miracles that happened in her story. And so you know what? That's what I did. I counted the miracles. And there are 28 miracles that I counted it's in her wild. story. Mm-hmm. So I just want to encourage you as you listen to her story to really think about the miracles, not only that happened in Nicole's story, but how God has shown up in your life as well. We're going to discuss that at the end of this story as well. But here is Nicole. 
I just want to apologize. I'm not super comfortable publicly speaking. I didn't invite a bunch of people or anybody really. But, and I, I had handwritten my story and wrote it down. And I'm going to try my best to not read it word for word. But I'll probably be reading quite a bit. Just don't get too nervous. But I'll go ahead and get started. Thank you for being here. I'm Nicole Baker. live in Tupelo, Mississippi with my sweet 8-year-old daughter, Lily. And I'm here today because I have felt for quite some time an overwhelming responsibility to share the many miracles that God has performed in my life, especially how He allowed both Lily and I to survive her three-year battle with leukemia. I want to start this with telling you a little bit about myself and how God has been equipping me my entire life just to be Lily's mom during those three years. I start with I grew up in Seattle, Washington in a not very Christian environment. My parents were divorced and I live with my mom and younger brother Billy. My mom was 19 years old without a high school diploma when she had me. So in a way, she was a child trying to figure out her own life while figuring out how to keep two children alive. We did a lot of moving around from apartment to apartment, changing schools, and basically the stability that my brother and I needed were just, was just not there. And my mom, although a believer in Christ, she was so busy working, trying to keep food on the table, that teaching my brother about God and the importance of an education was put on the back burner. So as two poor kids with little to no guidance, we were basically raised by an inner city public school system and our peer groups. We were exposed to drugs, alcohol, violence, and easily gave in to peer pressures. We were just trying to find a place to belong. As you can imagine, for two young kids like that, it was leading to a path of destruction. A turning point for me was when I was 12 years old. I ended up going to a week-long Christian summer camp, and I learned about Jesus in a different way that I've heard about before and decided that this Jesus that I heard about was what I needed in my life. Then I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior and invited the Holy Spirit into my heart. And from that moment on, I know that all my, although my life was not perfect and I willingly turned my back on God many times, He never left my side. I made and still make a ton of mistakes, but God ultimately saved me from becoming a product of my environment and led me step by step down a path that He wanted me to take. When I was 17, my brother Billy was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma. It was devastating. I spent my senior year of high school worried that I was going to lose my brother. I remember driving straight from my high school graduation to Seattle Children's Hospital to be with him as he received chemo and radiation. At that time, there was no ex expectation for me to go to college, and I certainly wasn't planning on it, but I did know that I needed to get a job. So I started with looking at the hospital that my brother was at since I spent so much time there. The only job that I qualified for was a dietary assistant, so I applied and I got the job where my duty was to hand out food trays to children with cancer. So it was there at a young age I learned how to prepare foods and handle foods carefully for kids with cancer who have no immune system. Like my brother, many of the children spent months at a time in the hospital, and I developed a real close relationship with their families. I knew which child liked their bananas a little green and which one loved milk and Oreos. My brother ended up beating cancer, but a few of the others were not as fortunate. And that hurt my young heart so hard to see that these children were losing their sweet lives to cancer. But that hurt triggered a fire inside of me to somehow make a difference, but I didn't know where to start. As a young person with the false belief that I was not smart enough for college, 
I tried to find a job in healthcare that I thought I might be capable of. While at Children's Hospital, I gained a huge amount of respect and admiration for the doctors and nurses who cared for my brother. I didn't think that becoming a doctor or a nurse was attainable for me, but I saw what a nursing assistant did, and I thought that I might be smart enough to do that. So I found a two-month summer course, became a certified nursing assistant, and worked at an assisted living facility caring for the elderly. I really enjoyed that, but there was something inside of me that wanted to do more. I learned about the role of a licensed practical nurse, or an LPN, and while they could not do all the things that a registered nurse could do, an LPN had more responsibilities than a nursing assistant. So I went through a year-long LPN certificate program at a technical college and started working at a local hospital on the telemetry unit. I worked on that unit for four years, and during that time, because every patient was there for cardiac issues and had a heart monitor, I became really good at reading rhythm strips and could quickly and accurately spot an arrhythmia on a patient's heart monitor. My coworkers encouraged me to go back to school to become a registered nurse, so I found a community college that offered an LPN to RN program. I worked night shift at the hospital, then went to school during the day. About a year later, I earned an associate's degree in nursing and was finally a real registered nurse. I wanted more of a challenge than the telemetry unit, so I found a position in another hospital at the critical care unit. At that point in my life, I started to realize that I was actually smart enough to do anything that I wanted to do and figured that I should go ahead and get a bachelor's degree in nursing since I was already a nurse. While continuing to work in critical care, I completed a two-year part-time RN to BSN program through Washington State University. After the bachelor's degree, there was still something inside me that I felt like I needed to do, do more. I started to explore all the different avenues of advanced practice nursing and was completely drawn to anesthesia. And of course, I had to choose the hardest of all graduate programs to get into, but this one school, Union University in Jackson, Tennessee, accepted me. So here I was, this broke girl who never thought I was smart enough to even go to college, lacking parental support, had Jesus, but wasn't necessarily living for Jesus, was one of the 27 out of 250 applicants selected for the class of 2013 CRNA program. How? God, of course, but I didn't really understand it at that time. Union University is a private Baptist college. So coming from the North where it is un-PC to publicly pray or even talk about faith, I experienced quite a bit of culture shock. Not only that, but I was in a place where I didn't really know where I stood religiously. I was a believer, but felt like God was for all those perfect people who dressed pretty and went to church every Sunday. And for some reason, I wasn't good enough for God. I felt for uh, extremely uncomfortable when as a class we prayed before every lecture and every exam. I felt like the outsider that didn't belong with these real Christians. But as some months went by, I started to become more and more comfortable with praying in class and even began praying on my own outside of school. I started going to church and for the first time really started reading the Bible. One day while studying, I received a phone call from my mom saying that my brother, Billy, was back on drugs and in jail. I had a guilt-filled meltdown. My brother was such a sweet kid who had already gone through so much and... I didn't understand while his life, why his life was spiraling down and mine was just getting better and better. I wanted so badly to trade places with Billy because I felt like he was much more deserving than I was. I cried and I prayed, blatantly asked God why. He answered. He spoke to me, but not with words. He just gave me an instant understanding. It was like a light bulb went off in my head and everything made perfect sense. I saw that how with my upbringing, It's realistic that I could very well be in my brother's shoes right now, if not worse. And 
it was God who helped me and protect me and guided me since I was 12 years old, giving my heart to Christ. And it was the Holy Spirit that was working in me and guiding me the whole time. From being exposed to children with cancer, to feeling the nudge to enter healthcare, always having the gut feeling that I needed to do more, slowly gaining confidence. Right then, I realized that it wasn't me. It was God. And I burst out into tears. I felt humbled and undeserving. I didn't understand, and still don't, (laughs) how He could love me this much, when at one point I even questioned His existence. I knew that He brought me to Union University and anesthesia school for a reason, and although I didn't really know what it was, I completely surrendered to His will. It was at Union that I met and married Lily's father, Lee. We graduated together in 2013, moved to Memphis where we got jobs, and in February of 2014, we were blessed with a sweet baby girl, Lily. My pregnancy with Lily was easy up until about 18 weeks. I started having pain, didn't know what was going on, went to my doctor and found out that I was having contractions. She put me on a medication that was supposed to stop the contractions, but it didn't work. It kept getting worse. And it was a Friday that she put me on the medication. I went home for the weekend. It was not getting better. I talked to her and she said, you know, Nicole, there's really nothing else we can do. If you're going to have this baby, then then it's going to happen. And I thought I was losing Lily already, everything I had waited for. I cried and I prayed and I reached out to people and asked for prayers. The next morning, my doctor called again and she said, hey, this is just a guess, but maybe you have a UTI. We never got a urine sample at your last appointment. So why don't, why don't we just go ahead and start you on an antibiotic just in case and come in Monday for an ultrasound and a urine test. So I got that medicine. Next day, started calming down a little bit. And by Monday, the contractions were almost completely gone. I got the ultrasound, and it was, in fact, a UTI. <laughs> so, praise God, when we got the picture printed out from the ultrasound, Lee and I both looked at each other in disbelief. And it's possible that this was only meant for him and I to see, but we sure did see it. And we saw the profile of Lily's body laying one direction and the profile of the face of Christ looking down on her in the other direction. We broke into tears, and I knew that that was God's way of letting me know that everything was going to be okay and that He had His hand on this child. The pregnancy went well for a good time after that. But at 31 weeks, I went into labor, and this time there really was nothing that could be done to stop it. Lily was born almost two months premature and weighed just 4 pounds, 11 ounces. We were told that because the blood vessels in Lily's brain had not finished developing, that as she was delivered, one of those vessels broke and she had a left-sided brain bleed. The doctor said that she would survive this, but that it would cause physical and cognitive deficits. And she had to stay in the NICU for, for over a month until she weighed over five pounds and was able to feed with a bottle. After we were able to take her home, we had to take her in for pretty f- frequent therapy checkups to see if she was meeting milestones. And she sure did meet every milestone. Only after a year of her going to therapy, they said, Lily doesn't need to come anymore. There is nothing wrong with her. She's met every milestone. The brain bleed did nothing to her. So everything was good after that. Lily was a happy and healthy baby. Lee and I were doing well with work. We were both offered jobs in Oxford and decided that that would be a great place to raise Lily. So we moved there early 2016. Later that year, we got the good news that I was pregnant again, and this time with twins. 
a boy and a girl, and Lee, Lily, and I were so excited about our growing family. Our lives really seemed perfect up until March of 2017. Lily had just turned three and seemed like a normal, happy three-year-old. Lee and I went to an- I'm sorry, an anesthesia seminar in Arizona for the weekend while Lily stayed with her grandparents in Eupora, Mississippi. Her grandparents called one night, and they said, Lily has a fever of 105, and we went to the store to get another thermometer just to make sure our thermometer wasn't broken, and it was 105. So I'm like, okay, just take her to the ER. She went to the ER. The doctor there said the only reason she would have this high of a fever was probably an ear infection. So he sent her home with some antibiotics. I just got the gut feeling in Arizona that something was really wrong because Lily had never had an ear infection and just knew something wasn't right. The next day, her grandparents called back, said Lily was throwing up, wasn't keeping down the antibiotics, that her temperature was 105 again. We asked them to take her back to the ER, and we caught a flight back home. We made it down to the hospital in Eupora around midnight that night, and that time they had done blood work. They said that they noticed some abnormalities and wanted her to go to Le Bonheur in Memphis to see a hematologist. And having heard the word hematologist with my brother before, I started to get really nervous. Lily was looking bad. She was very pale, and she wasn't wasn't staying awake very long. We got to Le Bonheur around 2 a.m., and before you know it, Lily started being transfused with blood. And Lee and I, both working in anesthesia where we transfuse blood, we know that a child has to be on the brink of death to receive blood. And that much, we knew that she was really not okay. Everything was kind of a blur after that. Our heads were spinning. We hadn't slept in over 24 hours. We had no idea what was going on. And the next thing you know, we're being told to get in an ambulance. We're being taken across the street to St. Jude. We get there. There was an unmarked side door with a nurse standing in the doorway with a stretcher. Put Lily on the stretcher. I remember going down the hall, following her into an elevator, getting off on the fourth floor, and saw a sign that said, Leukemia Unit. I felt like I couldn't breathe and still couldn't comprehend what was happening. Within 24 hours, our worst nightmare was confirmed. Lily had cancer, a blood cancer called acute lymphoplastic leukemia. We were crushed, felt hopeless, and thought we were losing our beautiful child. That was March 14th of 2017 when Lily was diagnosed. Within a week, she had to have surgery to have a port placed in her upper chest where she would receive chemo. Nine days after her diagnosis on March 23rd, Lily was scheduled to receive her first infusion of chemo. And I remember sitting outside of the medicine room panicking, thinking about my baby getting pumped with poison. My stomach started hurting, my back started hurting, and I started having the same feelings and same pains that I had when I was 18 weeks pregnant with Lily. I was having contractions right there in the St. Jude waiting room. They were strong and not far apart. I went to the bathroom and saw blood. I knew what was happening. I was 21 weeks pregnant with the twins and in labor. I told Lee what was going on. I said, we need to go. I need to get help. And we went to get the car. Fortunately, Lily's grandma was there to stay with her to get chemo. We sat in the parking lot in panic, not knowing what to do. I remember Lee looking at me and said, where do I go? What do I do? And I said, I don't know. Just drive. So I called my OBGYN in Oxford. He was out of town. 
I called my OBGYN in Memphis, who was also my friend, and she was the one who delivered Lily. I said, hey, I think I'm having contractions. And she said, okay, come to my office and I'll check you out. And her office was about 20 minutes away. So we left downtown Memphis, went to go see her, went to her office, waited for a minute, got to a back room, and she examined me and said, Nicole, this is happening. There's an extremity. There, there's a baby coming out right now. I just screamed. I said, no, God, please no. And I was hysterical. Got in the car, went to the hospital. My water broke on the way. There was just nothing but pain. Got to the hospital, and the babies came quickly. I delivered Emil, our boy first, Ella, our girl second, and they were beautiful. Emil looked like Lee, and Ella just like Lily. We held Emil, and I held Ella. I put my pinky in her tiny palm and felt her squeeze. They were alive for maybe a minute, then died in our arms. They were just too little, and there was nothing that can be done. I felt like my soul had been ripped out from inside of me. I just remember shaking and screaming no over and over again, looking at the babies and saying, I'm so sorry, Mommy's so sorry, I'm so sorry. And they were buried, and I honestly, I wanted to die and be buried right there with them. But I had to take that pain and bury it inside, go to St. Jude, and give all of me to my only child who was now fighting for her life. And as if things were not terrible enough, within a week or two of Lily starting treatment, I noticed that her left leg was starting to swell and turn a purplish color. I started to worry that she had a blood clot and asked her oncologist to take a look at it. He didn't really think it it was looked too bad, so he said, "We'll go ahead and get an ultrasound." But he didn't. He wasn't super concerned. During the ultrasound, Lily was hysterical, as you can imagine, a three-year-old being told to hold still with a machine being held down on her legs. She was screaming and freaking out and said, she's like, please stop. You're hurting me. Why are you doing this to me? And I can't breathe and hyperventilating. And I was crying. Everyone was crying. And I even prayed then. I said, God, if you're going to take her, just take her. Don't do this to my baby. And it was just awful. But I remember looking up at the screen. I looked at Lee and we both saw something. We knew we saw a blood clot. We looked at the ultrasound tags and they couldn't say anything to us, but we saw in their eyes that they saw a blood clot. Uh, so we just we waited for the call later from her oncologist. And he had told us that the radiologist looked at the ultrasound and determined the test inconclusive because there was too much movement. I was just furious. I said, we saw a blood clot. Uh, please believe me. There, there's a blood clot there. You know, we saw one. He said, okay, I'll call a hematologist and see see what advice he can give. And I said, please just tell him that we know there's a blood clot, regardless of what the radiologist said. So then he called back again later, and he said, okay, I talked to the hematologist. And he said that we, we might as well just wait until Lily is put to sleep for her next spinal chemo injection, where they put a needle in her spinal cord, and she gets the chemo into her brain and spinal cord. Well, that was two days away. I just couldn't believe that they were okay with letting a blood clot sit for two days like that when her leg was already purple, but just bit my tongue and let it ride. And then two days went by. I spent the time praying and to no surprise, it came back that she had a blood clot in her leg. But this time it was so big that it stretched from her groin all the way down to her foot. It took up the entire distance of her leg. And now, since it had been over so many days since it had developed, It had now hardened or sclerosed to where an operation to remove it would be out of the picture. 
So now Lily was faced with losing her leg. I lost my mind on the hematologist and oncologist and was not a pretty version of myself, but I just thought that they were to blame for what was about to happen, and I felt no trust in who was taking care of my daughter. Fortunately, Lily's dad completely refused to accept the outcome of Lily losing her leg, and he started reaching out to doctors looking for anyone who would agree to operate because he thought there would be that it's doable. We were connected with Dr. Robert Gold, an interventional radiologist who is the chairman of radiology at the University of Tennessee, and he said he'd do it. He felt confident that he could. Both her oncologist and hematologist agreed to let him. Of course, it was, he explained it was going to be very risky because of how large and sclerosis the blood clot was, and she'd have to have a catheter placed in her leg that continuously gave her a medicine called TPA, it's a clot dissolver, that would put her at risk of hemorrhaging and bleeding out anywhere in her body. So then we were faced with the decision of either Lily losing her leg or potentially losing her life. I was not on board with the surgery. I said, forget the leg, I want my daughter. I don't, I don't think, I don't want to risk it at all. But Lily's dad was persistent that it would, needed to be done. So I chose to just trust his decision. And the night before surgery, we were staying at Tri-Delta Place, a a little hotel for families on the St. Jude campus. I was just sick and overwhelmed with fear. I was on my face, on the ground, praying and pleading with God, just please, please let Lily survive this surgery. And Lee was over by the window reading his Bible. He said, Nicole, come over here, look at this. And I looked out the window and I saw not one, but two perfect rainbows over St. Jude. And it was just unbelievable. I can't believe I got a picture of it. And I knew that that was God telling us that everything was going to be okay. The next morning, Lily went to surgery. Lee and I were with her pre-op, and we got to talk with Dr. Gold before she went back. He explained how he was going to go in and angioplasty, kind of break up a part of the, the blood clot, and then leave the catheter in her leg that would give the TPA, and that he said he had to do this surgery every day for five days with TPA running nonstop. He again explained the risk of hemorrhage, and we, we went ahead and gave our consent for him to proceed. So Lily was being rolled back to the operating room when her dad stopped and said, Hey, Dr. Gold, does it matter that Lily just had that spinal injection of chemo? Dr. Gold stopped, and he yelled at the nurses. He said, Stop right now. And he looked at us and he goes, we can't do this. We can't do this. And I was just stunned. I sat there and just stunned. And he goes, I didn't know that she had a spinal injection. And he said that because Lily just had her spinal cord punctured, that there was still that tiny hole there that was not healed up enough for her to have TPA. If that TPA was injected into her blood vessel that day, she would have most likely hemorrhaged into her spinal cord and brain and most likely would have died. Dr. Gold said that we'd have to wait a few more days, letting it heal up before he could get started. I just dropped to my knees and cried. Later, I asked Lee, I said, what made you think of that? If you didn't think of that, Lily might not even be here right now. And he said, I don't know. Just something came to me and thought I need to ask about the spinal injection a couple days ago. There's no doubt in my mind that it was God. So then it was time for a couple days went by, then Lily was cleared to have surgery. Oh, and side note, after that event, 
It started a new protocol at St. Jude where a child has uh, spinal chemo. It is flagged red on their chart for <laughs> for a while. So that's some good from it. A couple days went by, and then we started the surgeries. Dr. Gold was able to angioplasty some of her blood vessel, enough to get the catheter inside, and the TPA was started. And because she's a three-year-old getting this medication, she had to be intubated, paralyzed, and put into a medically induced coma for about a week so that this could be done because any little bump or movement or anything could cause her to bleed out. So it's just too dangerous. So for a week, we did that. Everything was going pretty well. And even though I understood everything was necessary and why everything was being done, it was very hard to see Lily how she was in the ICU being kept alive by machines. So Lily's dad went to work every day and I just sat in the ICU with her. Because of my job, I sit in the OR staring at patient monitors all day. I just sat there and stared at Lily's monitor all day. And one of the mornings, actually I heard it before I saw it. I was in the other room. I heard a beep, beep, beep. And I'm like, that is too slow for a child's heart rate. And I ran out to take a look at her monitor and I just stared so closely at her heart rhythm. I looked at it and knew exactly what it was. She was in what was called a second degree heart block. And it's one of those things I learned working on the telemetry unit as an LPN. I knew that there was first degree heart block, second degree heart block, and then third degree heart block. Your heart's so slow. You have to have a, an external pacemaker on while you work on getting an internal pacemaker put in because after that, your heart just stops. And I went out to the nurses. I said, hey, Lily's in second degree heart block. Can you please get an external pacemaker ready and let call her doctor like this is this is happening? They looked at me like I was absolutely insane, but they went ahead and called the doctor. The doctor came by, he took a look at the monitor and he's like, ah, I don't know. I don't I don't think so. I was like, Can we just get an EKG, please, the test to determine what's really going on? And he's like, All right, got an EKG. Of course, the EKG said second degree heart block. He phoned a couple friends, Google searched. We started figure, trying to figure out what was going on, and after a little while, determined that it was a rare but noted side effect of the medication that she was getting infused with to keep her asleep. So he's like, okay, let's stop this medicine and start her on a different one. Right then, it took care of that problem. After that, I sat there, and I had chills thinking about what could have happened to Lily that morning, and I'm like, there's just no way that if there was any other person sitting in this room... The doctor didn't even believe me. No one else would have known this. And I just thought, like, this is crazy. When I was such a young person, not having any real direction or knowing where my life was going, thinking I wasn't good enough or smart enough, I was on a telemetry unit learning heart rhythms like the back of my hand for this moment. The week goes by and everything goes perfect. Dr. Gold successfully removed the clot and saved her leg. The TPA was stopped, and it was time for Lily to wake up. I wish this this got better at this point, but when the ICU doctor said that he wanted to turn off the medications to give Lily a chance to wake up and start breathing, I was like, okay. And she quickly started 
making a little bit of effort to breathe, and her ventilator started alarming. The doctor came in and said, okay, let's go ahead and pull the tube out. And Lee and I just kind of stood by watching what was happening. He called the respiratory therapist in. They pulled the tube out. And Lee and I just looked at Lily, and we looked at each other, and we both said at the same time, like, she's not breathing. She's not breathing right now. So everyone's kind of looking around. Then we look up at her monitor, and her oxygen saturation starts going down. She starts turning blue. She's not breathing. The respiratory therapist comes over and starts bag masking Lily to oxygenate her. And I'm watching her, and I just go into anesthesia mode. She's not ventilating her. Lily's turning bluer and bluer. Her oxygen sats are going down. She's about to be coated. And I do feel bad about this, but I'm very sure that I physically pushed that respiratory therapist away, took the bag out of bag mask out of her hands, and started bag masking my own daughter. It was very blurry. And her oxygen saturations came up. And I, I looked around. We were trying to figure out what was going on. Lee and the ICU doctor had gotten into an argument. They were arguing about why Lily was not breathing. And Lee said, she's still paralyzed. I'm like, yes, of course. She's still paralyzed. The paralytics have not worn off yet. And the ICU doctor said, no, she wouldn't have made a respiratory effort if she was. And just then, as I was begging Lily, freaking out, Lee and the ICU doctor are arguing an anesthesiologist just so happened to walk by that Lee and I knew, like, this is, this is just insane. And Lee yells out the room, hey, man, do you have any neostigmine in your pocket? <laughs> A drug used to reverse paralytics. And he's like, yeah, actually, I do. Can't make this stuff up. <laughs> he came in the room, handed Lee the bottle of neostigmine. Lee said, gave it to the ice. He said, give her three cc's. <laughs> gave her the medication. Lily started breathing. The ICU doctor left and never came back, but um, she started breathing. The sweet baby woke up. I think not not long after that, she asked for some chicken nuggets. <laughs> but that was insane. It took us a few days to really soak in what happened. Lee and I just resuscitated our own child, and... Again, just like with the heart rhythm, I sat there and thought if there was any other set of parents here watching this happen or maybe even not watching this happen, what would have, what actually would have happened? She would have coded. She would have died. Like, who knows what would have happened? Again, I thought all those years always being told I need to be doing something more, keep going with education or being drawn to anesthesia, this was what it was for. It was not for me. It was for Lily. That's incredible. After all of that drama, we had about a good year go by where Lily's leg was good. Her treatments were going well, and we were allowed to go back home. Lee and I started working again, and I took Lily to St. Jude once a week for her treatments. We fell into a new kind of normal routine where she got her medicines at home, and it was okay on the surface, but I was still dealing with the issue of never having time to process the loss of the twins. I was suffering from for real PTSD. Almost every night, I'd lie in bed, and as I would drift off to sleep, I found myself actually reliving every single detail of Emil and Ella's birth and death, followed by me shaking 
and screaming hysterically, no, and I'm so sorry, and no, 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 and I'm so sorry to the babies, and just waking up in a panic thinking that I was there. It was terrifying. What I believed about the babies was that dying was not a part of God's plan. I believed that He created them perfectly, and that it was my fault that they died. I thought that if I had done something differently, they would be here like they were supposed to be. Uh, If I didn't let the stress of Lily's diagnosis get to me so bad, maybe I wouldn't have gone into labor. Maybe my body is to blame for not being strong enough to keep the babies in. So, and if we didn't go 20 minutes across town, if we went to any of the many hospitals right there next to St. Jude, maybe something could have been done to save them. But whatever the reason was, I was sure that it was my fault. I never spoke to Lily about the babies and definitely never let her see me in pain. She was already going through too much. She did notice that there was not babies in Mommy's belly anymore, though, and she asked where they went. I kept it simple and very matter-of-fact. I said, the babies went to heaven because that's where God wanted them, even though I did not believe that. And she just said, okay. I started going to therapy, and it was helpful to have a place to process and let the feelings out, but nothing was really changing my belief that it was my fault, and the PTSD experiences continued. Until one day I came home from work and Lily was singing and coloring at the kitchen table, her usual happy self, and I started just going through mail and doing normal after work things. And Lily just turns her head towards me and says, Hey, Mommy, you know about the babies that are in heaven? And I said, Yeah. And she goes, Well, God told me to tell you that it's not your fault and that He wants them there. I stopped and I said, baby, what did you just say? Mommy, God told me that it's not your fault and that the babies are in heaven because God wants them there. I said, okay, baby. Ran to the other room, had a breakdown, got Lee, and I said, hey, have you said anything to Lily about the babies? It, well, she just said this to me, and he's like, no, I haven't. He ran out there, and he said, hey, Lily, what did you just say to Mommy? She repeated the same thing. We came back to the room and we both just had a breakdown. I knew I knew Lily's heart and I knew that God knew my heart. There is no person on this earth besides Lily Baker that could have told me, no therapist, no one that could have said, it's not your fault. Besides her, it had to come from her. I knew it wasn't my fault. And <laughs> this little angel gave me the peace that I needed to know that the babies were where they needed to be. I did still have the PTSD experiences, but they started getting fewer and fewer to now where I don't even remember the last time I had one. Back to Lily's journey with cancer. Like I mentioned earlier, things were going pretty well with her treatments. We fell into a routine of doing her medication at home and going to St. Jude once a week. It was December of the last year of her treatment. We noticed that she started to get a little rash on her right leg. It just looked like a little cluster of red dots. So when we were at the hospital, we pointed it out to her oncologist. And rashes or sores weren't really uncommon things while on chemo, so he wasn't concerned about it. And we decided not to be either. But after a few days, the rash spread to her back and then to her face. The rash started getting close to her eyes, and, and I started to get really nervous. A few days after that, Lily got a fever, and we rushed her to St. Jude. She was examined by sort of their ER, 
doctor. And when, when these kids get fevers, it's standard for them to come in. And within an hour, they have to be started on antibiotics. So, th- so that's what they did. And they took blood, still not really thinking much of this. And the blood s- showed some abnormalities, but again, not super abnormal for a kid with cancer. The conclusion was that she probably just had a little virus and a rash. And we were told to take her home Give her lots of water, rest, usual stuff, but to hold her chemo medicine for a week and see how if we could start again. So we didn't give her chemo at home. Um, but Lily started complaining of her head hurting. And she said, turn the lights off. My head hurt. My head just hurt so bad. Turn the lights off. Well, that was kind of weird. A few more days went by. Her fevers got higher. Her head was getting worse and worse. We took her back to St. Jude. At this point, she was admitted And she was crying and screaming in pain. Something was definitely wrong with her. An infectious disease doctor was then consulted to help us figure out what was going on. She was put in an isolation room since there was now suspicion of an infectious disease. She was given more IV antibiotics and Tylenol. And the viral test was run. Turns out that this rash was caused by the shingles virus, which was really confusing to us because Lily had never had chicken pox. But strangely, she was given the chickenpox vaccine at 18 months, and it had stayed a live vaccine dormant in her body for the opportunity where she had no immune system, and it just showed up as shingles. So Lily started to, she started on antiviral medication, but continued to decline. Headaches got worse. Fevers got worse. She started screaming that when the light was on, and she was just outside of herself. She was thrashing around. She would go from being unarousable to being in so much pain, and there started to be worry that it had gone to her brain, spinal cord. So she got sent for a spinal tap. And sure enough, the virus had spread to her brain and spinal cord. She was now suffering from viral meningitis and encephalopathy. Her brain was swelling. Not only was she at risk for permanent brain damage, but we now feared death. Over the next few days, our fears were coming more of a reality. Lily wasn't herself. She was mentally gone. Nothing was keeping her fevers down, and the antivirals were not working. And on top of that, she has now gone two weeks without receiving any chemo or anything to treat her leukemia. So it's just a bad situation. I knew that with the brain swelling and the high fevers, that any minute she could start seizing or go into cardiac arrest. It was almost like we were just waiting. Then our worst nightmare was confirmed. Lee and I were sat down with a team of Lily's doctors and told with the antivirals not working that there was nothing else that they could do and that Lily not making it through this was a possible outcome. That was it. Here we were on the last year of treatment and we were losing Lily. Just couldn't believe it. After everything we had been through, now here we were losing her. It, it was unreal. But that night, I felt different. I prayed different. It was like I was just tired, and I just surrendered. I gave up to God, and I said, God, she's yours. She's not mine. She never was. And if your will is to take her home, then I accept your will. And I know that you are good no matter what. That was it. People started coming in to be with Lily as the news spread quickly and about how sick she was. It shook our community pretty well. A lot of Oxford came in, family and friends, to touch her, pray over her, and possibly say goodbye. 
there were so many tears. Then all of a sudden, just as quickly as Lily got deathly sick, she started to miraculously get better. Her fever went away, her rash started to heal, and she started waking up and talking exactly like the Lily we knew. It was, it was just incredible. And two days before Christmas, we were released from the hospital and allowed to go home. Before we left, the infectious disease doctor pulled us aside and he said, I want you to know that I cannot take credit for her survival. We already knew that. It was God. It was God. Another miracle, Lily healed from the meningitis completely unscathed. She was the same smart and happy child that she had always been and continued to do well with the chemotherapy and other treatments. So we fell back into a sort of normal routine. And before you know it, it was time to start planning her no more chemo party. I knew that it had to be something huge. I wanted to do something so big that it could adequately celebrate Lily's, the miracle of her life and all that she had been through. I thought about Lily and what she loves, and that is music. She sings all day, every day, and I knew I just wanted something music related. One day we were driving to St. Jude, and I saw a billboard next to Lander, Lander Center excuse me, saying that Lauren Daigle was going to be performing on October 10th, 2019. And 10, 10, 19 was the day of Lily's last chemo. I was like, this is unbelievable. Lily loves Lauren Daigle, knows all her songs, and this is just perfect. That's what we're going to do. We're going to have her no more chemo, and I'm going to take her to the concert. I thought I'll get us front row tickets, and it's just going to be great. So I started looking for the tickets, but something was like, hold on, Nicole, just wait. Don't get them right now. So around that same time... I went on a weekend trip to New York with a group of girlfriends. I was casually talking about how I wanted to celebrate Lily's No More Chemo party, and I wanted to get her tickets to Lauren Daigle concert. And one of the girls, Sarah, who was a friend of a friend I didn't really know, she's like, well, hold on a second. My uncle works in the industry, and I bet he could probably get you some tickets, so hold on. She called him and talked to him, and then him and I spoke on the phone once, I told him Lily's story, and he was like, yeah, I'll get you some tickets. Be glad to. And he's like, y'all just go to the concert, and I'll have tickets waiting at Will Call. I'm like, this is great. Everything's just coming together great. So 10, 10, 19 finally showed up, and we showed out big time. We went to St. Jude for Lily's last day of treatment, accompanied by about 30 friends and family members, all decked out in matching straight-out-of-chemo T-shirts, Lily Beat Cancer T-shirts. Lily's doctors and nurses all sang her the famous No More Chemo song. And, oh, they threw the confetti all around her that we had seen on the hospital floor for years. And finally, it was our turn for the confetti. It was a great day. That evening, we told Lily that we had a big surprise for her and that we were going to the Lauren Daigle concert. She freaked out, was so excited. We went there, and we went up to Will Call to get our tickets, and I didn't know what kind of tickets they'd be. I knew they were free, so that was great, but I had my fingers crossed that they'd be really good seats. Um, so we had an envelope handed to us. I looked inside, and we had three tickets, along with three VIP meet and greet passes. I'm like, no way is this happening. So we find our seats, which are in the third row. They're good seats. And then we were invited backstage before the show. 
We were waiting in a small dressing room, and in walked Lauren Daigle. She looked at Lily and said, you must be Lily. So she already knew who she was, and I had no idea what was going on. I could just cry. They talked, they played, they sang together backstage. It was precious. They did this for about 20 minutes. Someone had to come back there and tell Lauren that she, they're like, okay, you got to go. It's time to go on stage. And they were, Lily had given her, we had an extra straight out of chemo, no more chemo t-shirt. And she said, can I give it to Lauren? Okay. Gave it to her. She's like, okay, Lily, I'll wear this during the concert. How cool is this? So... We go on our way, and as Lauren Daigle was going down the hallway one way, we're going the opposite direction. Cute little Lily yells back, you got this, Lauren Daigle. (laughs) It's just so sweet. We go back to our seats. We watched her come out on stage wearing Lily's T-shirt. It was just incredible. We were so happy. After about three songs, a man came up to me, tapped me on the back of the shoulder, and said, hey, excuse me, do you think Lily would want to go on stage? Before I could say anything, Lily pops up and says, yes, yes. And she just basically jumps over her seat into this stranger's arms and follows him backstage. I look up and there Lily is on stage with Lauren Dangle. And before you know it, she's reaching up to grab her microphone, start singing a song, and it's just beautiful. Lauren Daigle told the audience that it was Lily's last day of chemo, and every single person there stood up and applauded Lily. I looked around just flooded with happiness and thought, this was it. This is what Lily deserved for everything. This is what she deserved for her no more chemo, but this wasn't anything that I could have planned. This was was organized by God. Just the day, 10-10-19, this was God, (laughs) and it was amazing. Today, Lily is a beautiful, happy, and healthy eight-year-old who has been through more than most will go through in a lifetime. The brain bleed at birth, leukemia, blood clot, learning to walk again, meningitis. But praise God, her happy little spirit has been completely unaffected. She still smiles all day and sings every day. She constantly seeks God and shares God's love with others, often giving me the advice that I need. And she works hard with both of her little legs to run and fundraise for St. Jude. All she wants to do is give back to the kids who are now suffering from cancer. And as for all the doctors who said that she would likely have brain damage, cognitive deficits, behavioral problems, or learning issues, all I have to say is that's not what God said. Lily is smart as a whip, a straight-A honor student, and was placed in a gifted class. I spent a lot of time in reflection thinking about all that God has done for me in my entire life when I'm very sure that I never deserved it. From being a misguided young person, lacking a Christian environment, not believing in myself, having Jesus in my heart but not living as a Christian, even pushing God away and questioning if He was real, to today where my life is still not perfect. I'm a mess and I mess up all the time. I struggle with depression. My marriage to Lily's father did not survive all the trauma, and I struggle with shame because of that. I may never be that person who I feel like is the ideal Christian, who's nice and smiles all the time and looks pretty and goes to church, but I do know that I'm growing spiritually and seeking God daily. I consider myself like a messy work in progress, but from all that I learned, I I know that that's okay. I'm okay with that. From the moment I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior at 12 years old, I was His, and nothing I have done or will do will ever take His love away from me. 
to him, I am worthy. And all of the miracles that he has performed for me throughout my life, and especially with Lily, I'm worth it. And what an incredible comfort that is, knowing that the God of heaven and earth loves me deeply and personally. And my perspective on life's problems has changed a lot. Having lived through so many situations, many that I thought that I would physically not survive or that life would never, ever be okay again, well, I did survive, and life is, in fact, okay. God got me through everything, and I now have such great faith and trust in Him that there's not much I worry about. Problems just don't seem that big anymore. I can live with confidence that whatever hardships come my way, God will get me through it, and I will be okay. And that is a message that I really wanted to share that no matter who you are, where you come from, what you've done, what type of mess your life is in, if you have if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are a precious child of God with all of His love and miracles. And there is nothing that He can't get you through. As we all talked about at the beginning, there is so much to love about this story, and yet why it was heavy, yeah. because there was sadness. 28 miracles why are we surprised every single time that the Lord moves, every single time he does something? We say it around here. We can't believe it. Yeah, yeah. But yet, why can't we believe it? Right. I mean, he is the God of miracles and he is still performing miracles today. I love that Lily got to be on stage with Lauren Daigle. Oh, that is such a dream. <laughs> it was wonderful. But but I mean, just Nicole's faith and, and just step by step, mm-hmm. her walking with the Lord. And, you know, towards the end, when she talked about all that the doctors had said over Lily's life from the mm-hmm. minute she was born and had the, the busted vessel in her okay. brain and mm-hmm. all of the delays they thought she would have and how she ended it. I wrote this down in my notes. She said, the doctor said all of these things, but that's not what God said. Mm-hmm. And it gives me chills even now to mm-hmm. say that out loud because while God has given doctors all kinds of wisdom, and we are forever grateful to the medical field, Absolutely. at the end of the day, he is the ultimate right. physician. And when you count 28 miracles, and she should have not lived brain, like there are so many things in her life that are should nots, but that's not what God said. Yeah. You know, her story did just challenge me to look back on my life and just the miracles where God has shown up in my life. And I think all three of us have so many of those. And so one of the things that that we're offering to our Patreon community is a conversation, continuing the conversation. And we're doing that on Nicole's story today. We're going to talk about how we have in particularly seen how God has shown up in our lives and the miracles that, that have happened in our lives. And, and I just hope whether you're a Patreon member or not, I hope that you take some time today to sit and reflect on what God has done in your life over the years. I mean, it goes all the way back to when Nicole was 12 years old and God met her when she was 12. And then, of course, all the schooling that she went through to set her up to perfectly care for Lily. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, ending there with the incredible miracle of the chemo party and how God just did above and beyond what Nicole wanted to do for Lily. So if you're not a member of Patreon, that is in our show notes. You can go down and look at our show notes. What are our show notes? What are show notes, Katie? Tell me more. show notes are actually, if you look on your podcast feed, you just scroll up and those show notes are at the bottom. We put links there all the time, a lot of times to Patreon if you want to join Patreon, but we'll put links in there as well to books and songs that have been mentioned as well. So that is what your show notes are. So we hope that we will have you join us over on Patreon for Continue the Conversation. 
And then next week, we want to just let you know which story is coming. And that is Mandy Trawick from Auburn. And she shares a story really of just God's sweetness of walking her through divorce and where he has brought her today and how he helped her navigate that with her family. And so that gives you something to look forward to next week and the story you're going to hear. Y'all, thank you so much for listening. And we hope you have a great week and we'll talk to you next week. Bye.